Hey everybody, it is episode 46 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Rogue in Austin, Texas. Steve is actually on the line with me today. We're not in the same studio today. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We are excited to be coming at you today. We've got a couple of things. We've got a smorgasbord of of sorts of intro topics that we're going to cover that I think are interesting from some articles to some results from this past weekend. And then our main topic today is going to be race strategy and race planning. We've talked about this a little bit from a marathon perspective, but we haven't talked about it from the perspective of a 5K, 10K, or half marathon. So we're going to do that, get into that a little bit, kind of tell you how to prepare for perhaps some upcoming fall or winter races of those distances that you might be preparing for. So that'll be our main topic. Before we get there, of course, we'll jump into these kind of current events and some articles that we wanted to discuss. One, we've, we, ha- we, we had sent to us by a listener, Peter, from California, who's going to be moving to Austin next year, sent us an article from the New York Times, which some of you may have seen, and it basically talked about a study that was recently done comparing, in Madrid, comparing the impact of a half marathon versus a marathon on the body. So what they did was they took 11 half marathoners and 11 marathoners in a race in Madrid and tried to basically choose runners of similar profiles. And then they did some tests before, some blood tests, as well as some some vertical leaping tests. And then they did some tests afterwards, checking for dehydration levels and then blood markers that relate to muscle fatigue and muscle inflammation. And so the results were out. It was summarized in the New York Times. Peter wanted our reaction on the article, so we're going to give it to you. And the results aren't that surprising. Basically, the half marathoners had fewer blood markers that would indicate muscle soreness and fatigue. And so the marathoners, although not necessarily dehydrated, had more blood markers that indicated muscle fatigue and muscle kind of wear and tear. And then, of course, their vertical leap test wasn't as good (laughs) as the marathoners relative to their baseline. So that was the kind of summary conclusion. But the article from The New York Times then jumped from there to saying that it basically meant that running long distances is quote unquote not enough to prepare the legs for great de- for the great demands of an endurance event like a marathon you must add in gym training to prepare your muscles for the stress imposed by these long races so the conclusion kind of jumped to by one of the researchers at least from the University of Madrid was that strength training is the answer and that was perhaps the difference between you know the the muscle fatigue you might see in a in a marathon or not and so Steve I'll go to your reactions first obviously we know that strength can be helpful because we just talked about it in our one percent episode but what are your reactions to this article well I just want to know why the hell the article was written in the first place I mean it's like I, I don't know it almost seems like it was a short I don't understand really the whole point of it. As I was first reading it, I thought, oh, this is this could be pretty interesting. I mean, you and I both though, Chris, as coaches and as athletes, the differences between the half marathon and the marathon are so extreme that it almost defies easy categorization. And so I just look at it and say, 
I just don't understand what the study's point was, honestly. Um, that's my first point. Number two, why the hell is the New York Times writing about this when they could write about a whole bunch of other articles that could have been better spent time, my time at least. Thirdly, while I do agree that doing weight training could be one of the most important factors to help athletes be prepared for the late race, we also don't know a lot of other things about what exactly the training was going on. And, you know, at one point in time, I think it said that the, that the, that the, the professor of physiology um, that was doing the study said um, that, you know, on paper, the marathon racers should have been prepared for the rigors of their distance or whatever it was the distance of it, but no one can prepare for 20, you know, preparing for 13.1 and 26.2 are just completely different things. And you, as you and I've talked about on many times, there's no way you can prepare adequately for a marathon. You know, we've talked about that. So my at first thought was, uh, okay, interesting. And then later it was like, this is this is terrible. And then the jump that he made straight to weight training without discussing a wide variety of other modalities that might be helpful to preparing for a marathon just made me shake my head. I was like going, I don't understand this at all. And um, it, it, uh, there's a lot of other great articles out there that people could read. Um, and I, don't, I think, you know, their article's title is What Half Marathons Can Teach Us About Running a Marathon. This article could teach us absolutely nothing about running a marathon. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're right. Because, I mean, there's layers of issues. First of all, the study only had 22 people in it. So that's really, in my mind, not enough of a sample to really draw any meaningful conclusions, especially when you're only looking at two 11-person sample sets. So that's one. The second is any conclusion that you draw from this is is – or in terms of application is overreaching because the only thing you can really say is that at least for these 11 people who ran the marathons, they had higher incidence of blood markers indicating muscle fatigue and, and soreness than the half marathoners. And yeah, well, of course, of course, of course they did. <laughs> I mean, that's stupid. It's a marathon. You're going to get beat up by a marathon. And so that's all you can basically say, which we essentially already knew. And any leap to application is silly because, as you said, we don't know enough about these people and their training. We don't know enough about how they ran the race, what their splits look like. So there's a wide variety of things, I think, that could limit or help you manage those elements of fatigue and muscle soreness late in a race. One of those things could be having stronger legs, but others could be having a better race plan, as we're going to talk about later. You know, it could be perhaps incorporating some pace work into your long runs as we do in our training. There's lots of factors that could affect your late race fatigue. And the fact that none of those were mentioned and they kind of just jumped to one conclusion is sort of silly. So, Peter, we're calling bullshit on this one and we think the New York Times should better spend their time elsewhere. I don't think burpees are going to help you that much with a marathon. (laughs) Because if you go to the final workout, it says, look at the nine-minute strength workout. Nine minutes of strength workout is not going to get you ready. And doing burpees with push-ups in them, I'm sorry. I'm just calling bullshit all the way. And again, it just doesn't make any sense why this article was written in one of the great newspapers of the world. So shame on the New York Times. (laughs) Exactly. And for the listeners, it's like when you see these – conclusions drawn in the media from studies like these you got to dig deeper and actually figure out what's going on and kind of analyze it yourself without necessarily taking the sound bites that they want you to hear all right so that's our intro thanks peter for sharing that article 
And of course, if anybody has other articles they like our reaction to, fire those over to us. My email is chris at roguerunning.com. Second intro topic, Steve, we've got to talk about the Ironman World Championships that just happened in Kona this past weekend. Obviously, there's swimming and biking involved, but also running. And we had a couple of big races, you could say, because you had Daniela Riff or Rife finish a three-peat victory, winning her third straight Kona in a time of eight eight hours and 50 minutes. She ran a three-hour marathon at the end of at the Man. end of her her uh, Ironman effort, and then <clears throat> on the men's side, Peter Lang finished in a new Kona record in eight hours and one minute, beating the previous record by two minutes. And his marathon wasn't quite a record this year. He he had actually gotten that record last year, running a two thirty nine forty five. This year he ran two thirty nine fifty nine to make the pass into first at mile 23 and never look back. And so I want your reactions on this, Steve. There's a couple of questions. First of all, and I'll get to a few other things, but first of all, is this real? Is it possible to run a 239 after 112 miles on the bike and a 2.4 mile swim? I, I, I will in, in, I hope I don't upset all the great triathlon listeners that we have out there. But my guess is that the Ironman race distance is probably the least tested for sport in the world because they have no interest and they have their own governing body and the Ironman is not at the Olympic level. So I I don't know if it's possible or not. I'll tell you this. Um, that sport lends itself to doping beyond all sports, in my opinion, from a training perspective. But I do think it was pretty interesting to consider another idea about this. And maybe you're going to come up with this later. So if I jump it, just stop me. But I would be interested to see how much faster Lang could run for an open marathon period. Because that's an interesting... Yeah, that, that, that was my second question. Because that is What would that translate to? To me, that, well, I, you, know, you would expect it to translate to somewhere in the 220 region. But I would be absolutely shocked. I don't think that he could run 220. Those guys are big boys. They've got huge quads. And I didn't see this race, but I just assume that he's a big guy because there's usually big guys coming off. They're, they're, they're strong. And I, he probably is more like a 230 marathoner who can just run a 240 in, at the end of an Ironman. And to me, I don't see that as absolutely shocking based on the kind of training they do. But I just say at the first set is that this is probably – because there aren't as many – and, and triathletes out there, if we're wrong, if I'm wrong, let me know. I, I have no problem being wrong. But it, it just – it's not going to be – these guys are – they've got three endurance events and, and benefits of, of performance-enhancing drugs would be immense to these guys <laughs> from recovery, from the standpoint of being able to get back out on the road and do the work that they need to do. But I do think that one thing that is interesting is to consider that I would be pretty surprised if Lang is much faster than a 230 marathoner. But he's just really good at coming off the bike and being and basically suffering. So, regardless of whether they are doped or not, I, it does as you, as we've talked about this many times, Chris. It's not. I don't have a way to say that they are, or they aren't. But I can tell you that what he did is pretty freaking amazing. And the kind of training he had to do to be prepared to do that is pretty mind-boggling. Um, the kind of training that Ironman athletes do. I coach a few Ironman athletes in their run part of their training. And man, they work harder than any other athlete that I have. They do really hard work. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I've always, or at least for a long time, have thought that triathlons is sort of the last bastion of doping that yes. hasn't really been cracked down on. Because, and and I, I mean, to me, it's like, look no further than the fact that this guy can run a 239 at the end of a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, in conditions that are extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's known yeah. to get up into the 90s on Kona Island with crazy winds and you're running through the energy lab and all that where you've got just the heat just beating off of that lava rock. And so to be able to run a 239 off in those conditions at all is impressive, but much less to do it at the end of an Ironman. I, and frankly, and then he was like dancing at the end. I mean, he's so excited, which I understand the excitement, but to have that kind of energy at the end, I'm just, I frankly calling bullshit. I don't believe it. You know, we don't have any definitive proof that these guys are doping, but I, I'm just not buying it. And as you say, these guys are fairly big guys. I, I saw Chris McCormick, who was a former Ironman right. world champion winner one time in person. Dude's like six, four, you know, quads are bigger than my head you know, um, or my waist or something. I mean, they're, they're not tiny Kenyan marathoners. So I don't know. You know, the Germans have been dominant for many years and they're very, they're, you know, they're method, uh, really methodical about the training modalities. And, you know, to be a great triathlete, the 60% of a triathlon happens on the bike and the needs, the energy needs and the physiology, physiological needs of mar of bikers, of, of a person riding a hundred and 12 miles on a bike um, in com really windy, hot conditions and somebody running are completely, are very, very different. They, they look different, you know? And um, if you look at the, you know, if you look at a, the world's best who are in um, like the Tour de France, they look a lot more like, you know, Contador looks a little bit like a distance runner, you know? I mean, Lance was pretty big, but most of those cyclists, big quads, but many of them were are, are on the small side. Triathletes are not. They are very big people. Many of times they come from a swim background. So you're seeing very large bodies move at very fast paces in really, really tough conditions. And I'm with you. There's a lot of question marks there. But it still doesn't change that those guys are fucking crazy, man. The, the triathletes <laughs> are crazy. They are straight. And to think of a woman winning for the third time in a row and running three hours off that bike in those heat, in that conditions, regardless, those are just amazing performances. And, you know, I, I, you know, you hear this from me, Chris, all the time about uh, on one side, I'm tisk tisking and wondering what's real and what's not real. And on the other side, I still think the body has to do it. <laughs> they have to actually do the work to be that fast. They have to train that way. And so I still see, you know, I still see beauty and the challenge in it and how tough it is. But, you know, it's, I do think it's, it's always been a bit of a crooked sport in my opinion. So anyway, yes, I'm, right. I'm still, I'm, still I'm impressive. Yeah. I'm, I'm conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> still impressive, but yeah, there's some, some questionable results, I think, but you know, and, and really that goes all the way back to the days of Mark Allen and Dave, Dave Scott. Those guys but, were not running that much slower off the bike, Chris. I know. That's what I mean. They were, they were you like know, 242 he, or something and hammered each other. <laughs> I mean, Mark Allen had the previous marathon course record in, right. I think, yes. 240 flat or something. So Correct. anyway, but that was back in the 80s when they were probably on something besides EPO. So anyway, sorry about that, triathletes. I had to shove my skepticism. <laughs> You know, down your throat there, but uh, it is still impressive human results, even if 
pharmaceutically enhanced. All right, next, another, um, well, we got to talk about New York Marathon, and we're going to do a more complete preview with predictions and so forth on our next episode for the New York Marathon. But there's one athlete in particular that I wanted to call your attention to because I saw an article on her this week. Alephine Tuliamuk is an athlete we've mentioned on this podcast several times. She finished top American at World Cross. She's actually leading the U.S. Road Championship Series for the women. She can't be caught. She can't yeah, be caught. I mean, yeah, no, exactly. She's going to win. She's going to win it. Yeah. She's you know competed in the trials, and, and she's been all over the place, really, was just recently what third at the 10 mile championships yeah she's gearing up for new york so she'll be in the field trying to give shalane flanagan a run for her money but as top american but you know there's an article on her and i didn't know a lot about olafine tulimuk i know she's kenyan born now u.s citizen but there was an article on espnw and i gotta give a shout out to espn for featuring her because it's not necessarily an athlete they would typically feature and so it was just interesting to read a couple things and we'll link these articles in our show notes but one is that she is the she's one of 32 siblings her father in Kenya had four wives eight children from each wives and she was one of 32 kids living on a farm in Kenya which is crazy and then and then secondarily there was a it was a baby farm (laughs) yeah exactly yeah something going on there so and then there was another cool story in the article about when she was gearing up for a a regional ten thousand meter championships that they at the age of 12 tegla tegla larup who was one of the original famous kenyan female marathoners came to her school to talk and gave her a pair of shoes which were her first pair of shoes and she'd been running barefoot all her life it's so, so she could use it for that race and that was a seminal moment in her kind of development as a runner getting the getting that gift from somebody she looked looked up to in the kenyan distance running world so really interesting story about her background and then talks obviously about her move to the u.s and her experience here as well as a, as a now U.S. citizen. But I was just happy to see ESPN actually feature an athlete like that, which you don't typically see. Yeah, I, you know, I have a lot more experience with Alphine because when I coached at the University of Texas on the women with the, for the women there, Alphine ran for Iowa State and then she transferred to um, what, Wichita State. Um, but we, my, the athletes I coached had to race against her, and they, they always hated racing her because – she had basically two modes. Number one was go out fast and push the pace hard and, and shift gears a lot, which um, you know was not typical for what you would see in women's races. A lot of times there was just one hard push from the front without a lot of gear changing. And I remember many athletes that I coached from Mia Bain to Sarah Sutherland to just, and Mario Hall would all would be very, very frustrated with having to race her because of how – tough and unconventional she sort of was so i've she's been on my radar for a long time but what is most intriguing about her to me is just that she's continuing number one it's one of those stories you know you people have heard me many times argue about the kenyans becoming american citizens and it's, she's she's ripe to be come i think she's soon to be an american citizen and usually I, i'm bitching about that but with Alphine, you can see someone who has integrated with American society in such a way that 
it looks more authentic and more real to me and something that I can look at and say, okay, I understand why that would be the case. She's married to a, an American man who um, she met in college and, you know, they've been together for a long time. You know, th th these, this is the American story of people who moved to our country for reasons of the benefits of what we have to be an American. Um, but the full on benefits and being part of an integrated part of our society as a part of, as opposed to what we're seeing maybe with the, the, the groups that are in Colorado Springs right now. But I also love that she's just a fighter and I'm going to be, I'm going to be cheering for her at New York city. Not that I'm going to be cheering against Shalane. I'm a big Shalane fan too, but just happy to see somebody who was stuck with it for many, many years without being in the, in the, in the limelight, getting an opportunity to be number one profiled by ESPN magazine. I'm with you, Chris. I'm just grateful and thankful that our sport gets some interest and, um, you know, it's it's great to see that, but it's also great to have an athlete like her who's going to be in a position to hopefully do well there and, and have a great race. So, again, some really good, really good feel-good stories coming out of um, our national media right now instead of just the whole the shit show that we hear frequently about drugs and other things, you know, so. Yeah, <clears throat> she seems to be, to be one you can root for. So check out that article to get a little bit more context before you see New York. But, you know, she's going to be a part of a really interesting and awesome women's field at New York. You know, in Berlin, it was all about the men's field. But I think in New York, it's all about the women's field because you've got Mary Katani, current women's only world record holder, ran 217 in London. You've got Edna Kiplagat, of course, Boston Marathon champion, second in the world championships. Then you've got Shalane, the, you know, American. And can she come back from... You know, injuries earlier this year to produce another big marathon result, especially after doing some of the things she did on the track this summer. And then Alphine there, you know, as well. So it's going to be a fascinating race on the women's side. And we will preview that and give you all of our thoughts and predictions on our next episode. We also have to mention with New York that it's going to be Meb's last hurrah, his final marathon. And he has talked for a while about how he loves the symmetry of this race because. He'll be doing his 26th marathon at, at the age of 42. So kind of matching the miles, 26 miles and 26 marathons and 42K, 42 years old for Meb. He says he's, he's you know, getting in shape to actually go for it, even, you know, even if he knows it's going to be tough at his age. So we've got one last stand for Meb. One question for you, Steve, before we kind of transition into our, main topic at least as it relates to Meb where does he stand as he wraps up his career in the pantheon of American marathoners is he the greatest American male marathoner of all time no I mean I he is among them but he is not the greatest American male marathoner of all time in my in my view is a fight between Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers which we'll be discussing in some future podcasts but I, I when you win uh, when you win an Olympic gold medal and an Olympic Games, and then you win another Olympic gold medal, even though you come across the finish line second at the next Olympic Games, he should have been a two-time Olympic gold medalist in a marathon. That that I'm sorry, but that just jumps you over any. No one's. I don't. I know that we'll ever see an American that's in a position to do that again. But um, at a time when marathoning was still an international event, and it was maybe not as many Kenyans in it, but it was still amazing. So I, I still think Meb is not going to be the greatest. I won't consider him the greatest American marathoner, though I would say that he has 
one of the top three, two or three most, if not the most inspiring race ever in his win, which was at the 2014 Boston Marathon when he won. Yep. I can't remember the, yep. the bombing year. 2014. 2014, the year after the bombing, when he when he snuck away and won the Boston Marathon, that was one of the greatest races I've ever witnessed in my life, and certainly one of the days I was most excited and pumped up in the, about being an American and watching an American marathoner run. But, you know, no, I don't think he's the best American marathoner of all time, but I would say that he's one of the most beloved, and I think that he is singularly and almost exclusively responsible for the uptick in American talent base moving to the marathon sooner and folk and and consistently staying at it. I mean, he's he's been running the marathon for a long, long time, and I think that he has reawakened um, the marathon as a as a legitimate America a sport where we can see more people like Galen and other athletes winning world marathon majors. Um, I don't think that would happen if we didn't have we wouldn't view our view it in the same way if we didn't have um, a, a, a marathon leader like Meb was and how amazing he has been to the sport. So, you know, again, I can't call him the greatest of all time, but what I can say is he's done more for the sport um, in the since 1990 than any other athlete has done, in my opinion. So. Um, it's just really hard to, to argue against a, what I would consider a two-time Olympic gold medalist. So, <laughs> <clears throat> Well, I would argue that Meb should have at least one Olympic gold from Athens. I think Baldini was dirty, but I'll have to go back and look at the London Olympics when he finished fourth and see what the podium was there because well, actually he, wouldn't have been he, he may have been the first clean athlete in that race too. But Baldini, but Baldini shouldn't have won that race. He, Meb should have been third because the because the guy from Brazil got tackled. <laughs> so yeah, but that's still debatable whether he would have gotten caught by those guys anyway. But it is debatable, but it sure it sure wasn't debatable after that jack wagon came out and tackled his ass. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll have to debate goat U.S. marathoner at some point because I I don't know I give Meb a little bit more credence than I think you do at this point. No, but, I give Meb credence. I would put Meb as probably this third best marathoner of all time, in my opinion. Um, and his medal at the Olympics could put him above Bill Rogers in that category. But Bill Rogers just won the most critical and crucial marathons at the most critical and crucial times. He just never did it at the Olympics. He had some bad, you know, he got 19, 19 he wasn't ready in 72 and 76. He made the team, but he didn't get a chance to run at his best. And to 1980, when he might have been able to make another Olympic team, we didn't go to the Olympics. So, you know, there's arguments there. But there's no doubt that Frank Shorter was clean. There's no doubt think that Frank Shorter won the 72 Olympics outright. And he was second at the 76 Olympics. And he was beaten by a guy who we is absolutely known drug chief from the East Germany who should absolutely be written off the books. And his name should be wiped clear from all of sport. Um I have strong feelings about that, but that's why I think that Frank Shorter will be considered the greatest. I think Meb is two or three on that list. Still, absolutely great, and certainly in the modern era, at least the era that most of us have been paying attention, the clear favorite. He's way better than Ryan Hall. His performances are better than Ryan Hall's, and he should be beloved more than Ryan Hall, in my opinion. And I don't understand why there's still this cult of love for Ryan Hall. That doesn't make any sense to me, but anyway— 
We'll leave that alone. That's a conversation for another day. Either way, Meb's resume is impressive. Olympic silver medalist, New York winner, Boston winner, and certainly one of the greatest gentlemen in our sport. For sure, it will be sad to see him go, but awesome to watch him in his last race in New York. So stay tuned for a full preview on both the women's and the men's side as we will do that next episode. All right, so now let's jump into our main topic. We're going to be talking about, as I said at the top, we're going to be talking about race strategy and race planning and how you can prepare for all distances, 5K, 10K, half marathon, and marathon sort of being our featured road distances. And then at the end of this discussion, kind of generic discussion, we're going to talk about my 10-mile race coming up and Steve's going to kind of talk me through a plan on that so you can see how this might work in a actual athlete coach discussion. So first of all, Steve, I wanted to set some ground rules. We'll kind of assume that the race strategies we're going to be using here are fairly generic in that the courses are going to be relatively flat. So there won't necessarily be any kind of terrain to think about, although it'll be important to note that that obviously would impact a race strategy and a race plan, but we're going to kind of apply this discussion in a way that you can sort of say, look, for any kind of flat or flat-ish race, these are the strategies we would use because there's obviously an infinite number of terrain options out there and you can't account for those in one kind of simple generic discussion like this. So we'll start with the 5K, Steve, and I'm talking 5K road race here. What would be your strategy for somebody who's trying to run their fastest 5K. With all the caveats that you just stated, Chris, it's really important to be sure that we state that. It's kind of like when you, before you tell somebody to embark on any serious physical activity, they need to go see their doctor, right? But it really is important to realize that there will be different scenarios for different people given certain circumstances. But generally, this is these are our recommendations, right? Are, you, are we clear on We're both in agreement yep, on that? Exactly. So... First of all, I people have heard me say this a couple of times on this podcast, and I really truly believe it. I think that the 5,000 meters well run is perhaps a well run 5,000 meters is perhaps the hardest race to do because it hurts so bad. It's very similar to the marathon in the sense that it the way that it plays out over a much shorter time frame. It you have to get out you have to get out fast enough to be in a good position. You have to be willing to suffer through lots of ups and downs and you have to close it out at the finish so basically the best thing i would say for a 5k is know what you want to run for the cumulative 5k distance that you need to run and then divide that into know what your pace per mile needs to be all right so once you've got that down my usual suggestion is um if you're in a race that's got a good number of people in it um, or if you're a woman who has a lot of men who will be running around you because they usually do get more bodies to run with um, comparatively, um, get out at least as fast as what you want to average for your pace per mile in the 5K. So let's say that somebody wants to run um, you know, six minute per mile pace for their 5K. My suggestion would be to get out at 550, 555, or six minute pace for that first mile. Um, and a lot of folks will say, wow, I thought everything's about negative splitting. Well, not really, not in this race. In a 5K, it's about running as close to what you're physically capable as possible. 
The biggest mistake somebody can make, Chris, in a 5K is to go out too fast. So you absolutely need to go out close to what you think you're going to be able to average per pace per mile, but not too much faster. And, and the degree to which too much is, right, is a real is a real judgment call. And it's a really tough thing. And that's why I think this race is so hard. Because let's say an athlete who wanted to run six minute pace went out, could handle maybe 653 or 655 for the first mile. I mean, 555 or 553 or 555 for the first mile. They could not handle 545. Only eight seconds faster could put the nail in the coffin for them. So my first point is get out as close to your even split as possible, but realize it's going to hurt really, really bad. And 5Ks hurt really bad, Chris. You know this. You've, you've experienced a number of them. Yes. Um, and then the second mile is basically look around you and hang on. So either do your the famous Chris thing, start fishing, go fishing and start to catch people, keep looking up ahead of you, um, or or really work, really focus on your watch if you're able to utilize that feature to keep yourself on pace and to not let yourself fade. Because in that second mile, all the demons, all the devils, all the negativity that could possibly occur will be coming on to you. You'll say to yourself, I can't hold this pace. I can't manage this effort. But you can if you'll just stick with it. And so either using other bodies or using um, your watch to help keep you on pace, you want to run. You'll probably run a little slower that mile. Again, on our six-minute mile per runner who's trying to run a six-minute per mile for that 5K, they may end up at six minutes or 6.03 or 6.05, but they're trying to run as close to that six-minute as possible. And then in the final mile, it's got it out and hold on. And this is the part that really makes the 5K so difficult for so many people is they're not really willing to get into that pain cave or they're not able to negotiate or manage their way through it. And so it becomes really, really difficult. Um, a much kinder and gentler approach would, to be, would be to do, um, and if I had an inexperienced 5K runner, what I would tell them to do is to maybe go out in our six minute mile per mile goal time scenario. I might ask somebody to go out at 6.10 and then run 6.05 and then see if they can kick it into to 5.55 at the end. Now that's a much safer approach and it's easy to do, but it's not, you're going to probably end up 20 to 30 seconds slower than you want to be. What do you think, Chris? Well, yeah, I agree with that last point, which is that some of it depends on how, you know, how much you're trying to wring out of it. You know, if you're, if you know you have some, say you're trying to PR, but you know that your fitness is well beyond your PR, current PR, you might decide to have a more conservative start and leave a little bit on the table so you can run a negative split throughout. But if you're trying to get every second out of this race and, and kind of optimize your race given your current fitness, my general advice <clears throat> is to get out, as you said, a little bit faster than your target pace, 5 to 10 seconds. There's actually science, and I can share this article on as well in the show notes. There's science that says that you kind of have some free time in that initial period because you've got adrenaline pumping, you know, as you get off the starting line, you've got some kind of free energy there. So if you get out a little bit quick, that's okay. Not too quick, but a little bit quick. So I like to tell people five to 10 seconds fast on the first mile and then try to run your average pace, your, your target average on the second mile, and then close it out with whatever you have left at the end. It's really important. I think late in a 5k to, find a way to race 
you know, find bodies to go chase. As you said, you're going to have people around you. I like to say go fishing, but look ahead of you. Find someone ahead of you who's who you can go get. Pick a shirt color that looks, you know, bright and interesting that's easy to focus on and then go chase somebody down. Because if you're not chasing anybody down, you're probably slowing down. But that kind of, you know, energy of somebody else pulling you along will help you get the most out of yourself versus you just trying, if you were running a time trial, for example, it'd be much more difficult perhaps to get every second out of the race. So, so a little bit fast first mile, hold second mile, and then go fishing and close hard in the third mile. That's my general advice. The, you know, the other thing is, Steve, and we talked about this a little bit in one of our episodes, is you got to be prepared. I always tell my athletes before a 5K is like, don't neglect your mental preparation. Because as you said, this is as hard in a lot of ways as a marathon, just a different kind of pain. So don't neglect your mental preparation for a 5K. It's going to be over much more quickly. But to have some sort of mantra in your head, especially to stay focused in that second mile, is going to be really important. Yep. I agree. You nailed it. So the other thing I will say that you might find happens, and and we've talked about this before. I know coach athlete, Steve, is that with the 5K and then especially with the 10K, if you happen to get in over your head in a 5K or 10K, because it is shorter and because it's not like you're burying yourself at the end of a marathon, you can, even if you go out too fast and get in over your head, you can recover from that if you sort of back if you recognize it back off for a little bit regain your composure and then dive back into the paces that can work in a 5k or 10k if you get over your head so don't you know neglect that kind of concept if you happen to get out to a point where you're struggling you know it's okay to back off a little bit and then reconnect with the pace as you're able to get your breathing and heart rate under control well, I agree with you 100% on that from a 10K perspective. Um, in fact, my race plans in 10, for the 10K are almost always include getting up to the wall, you know, going right to the edge and then backing off and going right to the edge and backing off. But I would caution any, any you know, what I would call beginner to intermediate level runner to take the approach, that approach with a 5K because it can burn you so badly. But that doesn't mean it's not, a worthwhile activity. It just means that um, I would call it advanced studies in 5K is 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 pushing over that edge early on. Whereas I would consider for the 10K, it's kind of par for the course. It's what needs to be done in a 10K because the even though they're physiologically not that far off from each other, um, it, it's just the 10K is just a kinder, gentler race, Chris. It's just a it's just an easier race to run, um, and it sort of falls much more in that um, more endurance side than the than the 5k does so um, of course all most of our listeners are probably scared shitless of a 5k so <laughs> I probably don't need to offer too many more um, being conservative uh, appellates to that because they're probably already too conservative so maybe I should have just left that little segue alone <laughs> right so one thing uh, while we're on 5ks before we jump to the 10. One question I get often, and and this kind of spans distances, but a lot of people ask me, how do they, how do you, how do you warm up for a race that's so short? You know, it's like, do you do a lot of, you know, do you do three mile warm up? Do you do, 
you know, strides. What do you do? What do you recommend for a 5K warm up to make sure that when they get out, they get out in the right pace? Well, I guess some of this means that people would need to be practicing some of these things before they did it. That, with that said, but I think that one of the things I've used, well, first of all, the most important thing is making sure that you turn all the lights on. We've used that term before. I've used that term before, Chris, but it means making sure you do some drills and some leg opening exercises and some, you know, getting your arms opened up, your chest opened up, your breathing opened up. It's just basically doing some simple, basic running based drills that you can find nearly anywhere online to sort of get yourself to turn the lights on with your body. Another thing that I think is really important to do is to do some strides. And those are like, you know, five, five to seven to even 10 second gradual buildups that you go faster than the race pace you're going to try to be running for that first mile. Um, that's another recommendation. Those are pretty standard things that people recommend. I'm going to give our listeners a secret, all right? So I don't use this one. I don't give this one to too many people very often. But I use it sparingly with certain athletes, and for many people who are marathoners, it works really well. Consider doing about a five to ten minute normal warm up, just easy run that you would do. Um, let's say that somebody wants to run a two to three mile warm up before their 5K. One of the things I'll suggest is in the first mile, run super easy. In the second mile, if you go one, let's say two or three miles, second or third, in the second or third mile, do some tempo running, five to seven minutes at what your half marathon goal pace is. There's something weird that happens, and I don't have any scientific proof for this, Chris. I just know in my own experience it worked, and for many athletes that I've given this little tidbit of information to, it's helped them a lot. I don't know. There's something weird. It doesn't hurt too bad. It doesn't feel too tough. But if you do a little bit of half marathon goal pace work for about five to seven minutes, in the context of your warm-up, it seems to really prep people for that, for whatever little lactate dump that might happen in that initial mile, that initial first mile. Athletes seem to be able to be able to handle that a little bit more and not as weirded out by that feeling, and they might be better able to push through that that sort of that sort of scary moment where it feels like you're going too fast. So. That's a little secret that I would, I don't, I don't, I use that for the half marathon. I've used it for my milers many times. I used it in cross country. When I coached cross country, I'd coach girls who ran, you know, 5K cross country and guys who ran 10K cross country. I would do that all the time where I would ask them to do about 10 minutes of tempo-based running um, to get the lights turned on and to be prepared for that first initial shock. Um, and it's weird because the athletes sort of look at it like, oh, I have a workout before my race. I had to really work hard to make sure people understood that it wasn't detrimental to their performance, but it was just basically another aid in sort of turning those lights on and getting that body primed and ready to go. So there's a little, a little, a little pro tip for po folks. Yep. <clears throat> and that's something I've definitely used. My typical routine for anything up to 10K, certainly half marathon, it kind of depends on the weather because weather to me is a factor on warm up. If it's cold, I want to do a little bit more warming up than if it's hot because if it's too hot or humid, then I like to keep my warm up as as short and easy as possible to try to keep the body temperature down, but assuming the the weather is good and the temperatures are good, I I'll usually do 2 or 3 miles warm up with 2 or 3 3 minute segments about tempo effort 
and then drills and some strides to kind of wrap things up and get get to the starting line. So that's my typical routine. But I think warm-up is something you, you kind of have to play with. And as you're doing races, experiment with different things, different elements, like we've just talked about strides, drills, some tempo work, distance, and then find what works to you because that works for you because I do think it's a, a warm-up is a very personal kind of thing. It's what you need to do to get your body amped up and ready. Hey, Chris, before I move on, I want to do, I want to say one other thing. I want to ask our listeners, don't be afraid of racing. When you're not in your marathon prep part of your cycle, you should get out and run a lot of different race distances. The 5k is probably the most valuable race distance and it's something you could do week in week out if you wanted to so never be afraid of throwing a 5k race in in your cycle the best 5k workout you can possibly do is a 5k race so that to our listeners is it is a it is an a race distance that really takes a lot of practice and so many, at least in our part of the country, Chris, or at least in Austin where we live, so few people get out and race them enough in my opinion. And I think anybody trying to run a great marathon to a great half marathon should also be in the context of keeping these 5K and 10K races in their plans and, and trying to execute great, great race plans for those race distances at every juncture, at any juncture, and not be afraid of racing. I'm, I'm pretty sure you would agree with me on that. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk 10K. For me, I mean, 5K is hard, but for me, at least in my experience, it took me a while to figure out the 10K. The the hardest part for me with the 10K, at least early in my running career, was staying focused in the middle, miles three and four, because it was kind of easy to get out, get to get get out at a you know decent pace for the first couple of miles. Once you hit that fifth or sixth mile, it's easy to close because you know you're kind of cutting close to the end. But that middle section, I would often lose focus, lose valuable time, and then, you know, fade a little bit and then, you know, kind of get back on it at the end. There there was a long time early in my running career where I was trying to break 38 minutes for the 10K. I think I attempted it four or five times and missed each time before I finally got it done because I would lose focus in the middle and those middle miles would be too slow. So what are your recommendations for a 10 K race plan? Get out (laughs) right off the bat. It's to get out faster than your, you know, your, what would be your per mile split. And, um, unless there's a hill, you know, we, we have this, you know, there's a caveat there cause we have the, we have the cap 10 K that many of our athletes run. And the first mile is a long gradual uphill. So it's very dangerous to get out fast on that course. But for most races, what I'll tell people with the 10 K is not be afraid to get out. And my basic marathon rate, my basic 10 K race plan is get out and keep chasing and keep pressing, press, and then take your foot off the gas pedal and then press again and take your foot off the gas pedal. I like to talk about the 10K as a game. It's like a, it's like getting, it's like executing the perfect, fun race plan. It's not so painful usually through most of it, um, and you can actually use the disc each mile as an opportunity to check in with yourself and see are you pressing, pressing and pushing appropriately for what your goal time is. And my guess, Chris, was you talk about being at the mile four to five mile marker where you start to lose focus and you're not really staying on it. 
that's a factor of many people being in a position of thinking about the 10K as an even split run race. And I don't ever think that the 10K should be run that way. I think it should be more of a surge affair where you're constantly shifting gears. You're constantly trying to stay on the edge. And then when you get over the edge a little bit, back, back off. Because the race distance is, as long as you're not way too fast, as long as you're not 30 seconds per mile too fast, you're so, your, your body will recuperate and recover pretty quickly if you're at your 10K paces, especially if you've done 5K and 10K pace training work. And that's another part. You know, we're talking race strategy, but we're also assuming that there's some facility and some work that's been done at each one of these individual paces. You know, we do that in our program, Chris, and you do it with your coat, with your athletes, where you're constantly fluctuating between 5K, 10K, half marathon, and marathon paces. But if you've done your work at 5K and 10K training paces, you should be okay pressing the edge there um, and then backing off. Now, what's normal for most people is when the back off happens, they back off for longer than they should. And my suggestion for most people there is check yourself after a minute. What, 60 seconds is plenty enough time to get recovered if you're only about, you know, if you're in that five to 10 second per mile window of where you need to be. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, Chris, but in, in many people, when I've talked to them and in my own experience as a racer in the 10K, like I could run, you know, let's just say that I was trying to run five minute per mile pace. 455 would feel way too fast, but five minutes would feel great. And it's like a weird, the 10K is that weird thing where just that five seconds is the difference. And if you're running that 455 pace, let's say for a little while, and then you back back off to five minute pace or 505, if you just spend just a minute getting yourself and then pushing again, I think you'll overcome that sort of fourth and fifth mile malaise that kind of takes over for the runner. So that's usually what my suggestion is. Um, uh, we don't get a lot of opportunities to run the 10K in Austin. There's not very many races. And the races that we do, the race that we do have, the most famous one is the Cap 10K. And I don't even really consider the Cap 10K a 10K because it's, even though it's that race distance, it's so unusual with the course's hilliness and the terrain and the way that that race plays out. You have to run a particular strategic plan that sort of puts it in a weird way. Most of my 10K suggestions are coming from the track or my own experiences running a 10K on the road. But if you're in an area where you've got flat road 10Ks, this pushing, going to the edge and then backing off for a minute and then going to the edge again and backing off for a minute is a really helpful and um, good way to do it. But it, it requires a lot of courage, you know, Chris? It takes a lot of guts to do it that way. So, <laughs> so I get if, that. If you do it that way, though, you know, the Garmin's going to tell you something at the end that says, hey, you know, this is what you ran for each mile. What would you expect to see the output to look like? It would be, it would be in that 5 to 10 – it would probably be – you would go out – similar like the 5K, you would go out with your even split plan, but you'd – with, with an idea of an even split, what that even split per mile would be, right, for that 10K distance. But you don't want to settle there. And I guess that's my main point, is that if you said, okay, six-minute per mile pace is my 10K pace I want to run for this race, locking into the six-minute per mile pace will make you really mentally tired at three and a half to four to five, guaranteed. It's too long for the mind to stay focused on one activity at near max level. That's my point. 
And so by continuously going to six fit to five fifty five or five fifty, and then being like, "Oh shit, that was a little too hard. I shouldn't have gone quite so fast." Now I have to throw off, flow off to six oh five or six ten. As long as you don't get mentally in a place where you get worried or scared about that, and you're willing to come back at it, and you're willing to be courageous, you'll steal from a ten k way more. You'll run. 10, 15, 30 seconds faster for a 10K than you would have normally with a consistent per mile, you know, six minute per mile pace goal. And I know that to be true because I've done it many times myself and I've had athletes who have done it that way, have had great levels of success um, doing it that way. But it probably would need to be prefaced with one or two 10Ks where you ran an even split race plan, you know? So So it looks like even splits, but it's it's not that in practice and as, I, as i think about my 10k pr which came a few years ago i remember my mantra for that one was every second counts so you know every time i felt like i was backing off or kind of slipping the pace a little bit i would always kind of remind myself every second counts and impress you know for as long as i could to try to stay on it and so kind of de facto i think i was doing what you're talking about yeah, I had an athlete in a cross country race. You got to do that great 10K cross country race up in Lehigh. Remember, Chris, when you guys yes. took a team up there to run cross country? Um, and and uh, cross country is such a beautiful event, and it is the quintessential 10K race, too, in my opinion. But I had an athlete there who um, was running at the at the you know post collegiate athlete that was running there, and he was he was more of a 5K 1500 meter runner, and he was just so scared about my race plan of pushing to the edge, and I made him he had a little he had a little uh you know an iron man timex iron man watch and i had him have a one minute timer he had he all he could do was put on a one he had a one minute timer on it and at the start of the race he had to hit that watch for a one minute and each minute the watch he for the first five minutes he didn't listen to his watch he didn't even know it was going on but for the next 30 you know 25 minutes he i think he ran 30 to 31 minutes for his 10k in that race he he had to get shocked by his watch every minute. And at the end of the race, he said, in the first five minutes, I first 10 to 15 minutes, I hated you. I never wanted to hear another beep. He said, but by the end of the race, I realized that I was backing off more than I needed to. And, that, and when I heard that alarm, I heard your voice say, you can go again, try again. And he said, so for the last 15 minutes, 15 times, I asked myself, can I go one more time? And I found in the in that, you know, from 15 to 20 minutes, the answer was hell no. But from 20 minutes to 30 minutes, it was oh yes. And then he caught, he said he caught somewhere near 30 people over that last bit because he hadn't settled in to that mid-race malaise and that sort of feeling bad or feeling sorry for himself or feeling in pain. He was able to adjust. And I was like, it, you know, it was just a simple little tool to utilize to try to get him to think about it. And, you know, I knew it was a double-edged sword. I thought that could come back and cut both of us, of us. but it worked that day, you know. But it, that illustrates the point I was trying to make. Well, it's interesting. It also kind of goes back to this tactic I've referenced before, which is the counting that sometimes I'll do when I start to get into a funk. And I'll count to 30 and push for 30 seconds. And knowing you can do anything for 30 seconds, and then sometimes you find a new gear or you restart and you try again. So it's kind yeah, of the same concept, but interesting to think about using a watch to perhaps reinforce that as yeah, well. I think it works. It works. Really, it works really well in that case. And you know, we're the two races we're going to be talking about now, the 10 K and the half marathon are the most forgiving races in track and field. 
um, because there's enough time to fix anything. And I guess the point I would like to make with people running, most people know that with the half. I think most people's experiences of the half marathon is that it's a pretty easy race if you're if you've done your volume, you know. But people don't feel that way about the 10K. And I would argue, I would I would vehemently argue that it's more of a mental a mental approach to being on top of it and being courageous and taking risks. And they'll pay off in both the 10K and the half marathon greatly. But because the 10K is exponentially shorter, those risks will pay off much greater if you're willing to be courageous and take the chances. Interesting. But yes, it might look like an even split race, but it shouldn't be as you kind of press and then back off, press and you back off. So that's the 10K. Let's go to the half, which you said is easier. I don't know that listeners would necessarily agree. (laughs) I don't know that, (laughs) I think if you're running a fast half, I don't know how forgiving that is in my experience. But um, but let's talk about it. How would you approach a half marathon? Oh, it's I, I use the I almost always use a negative split plan for the half marathon because the race is just it gives you so many gifts, Chris. If you're prepared for one and the weather is just even halfway decent, I have two athletes, two fast athletes this weekend who are going to be up in Toronto running a half marathon. Um, and my race plan for them is the one I'm going to give you, which is negative split. Get out exactly at about ten, five seconds to 10 seconds slower than what you want to run for the first two to three miles so you can settle in and make sure the lights have turned on, that you're woke, you're woken up. Uh, you know, what's your warm up for a half marathon? That's always an interesting question because, you know, for marathoners, I don't ask them to warm up very much. In fact, I don't want them to warm up nearly at all other than what they just need to do just because I, I think that the first three miles should be spent warming up. But in a half marathon, you know, I think people will do some warm-ups. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter because I would, I would suggest five seconds to 10 seconds per mile slower, which would put somebody at two to three miles, 20 to 30 seconds behind what they want to run. But if then they get on even splits, depending on their race course and what their, the hills are and where their position and what kind of difficulty is in, you know, the, the terrain of the race that they're running – that, you know, from mile two to three to mile six or seven, you know, the 10K point and just beyond that, my suggestion is even splits from there. And then um, what I've found is many marathoners, um, many half, many marathoners that are preparing for a half marathon, if they've done, you know, my athletes have done 5K pace work and 10K pace work and half marathon work, they're really surprised um, at seven or eight miles how good they feel. And, you know, an athlete who feels mentally positive three-quarters of the way through their race, you know, two-thirds of the way to three-quarters of the way through their race, you know this, Chris, like like, like monsters are made, you know? Like people get aggressive and they run amazingly – they run in a really aggressive, positive way if you let them run in a sort of negative split plan. And the race distance is not enough like the marathon where they're where you know where the monkey's going to jump on their back no matter what there's no it's not really a no matter what question with the half marathon you know so um that's my suggestion it's like go out a little bit slower get on your even split plan and it's eight months seven or eight miles know where you want to go and start dropping five to ten seconds per mile if you can and then see if you can't rock that last 5k and do the best you can that's my normal suggestion for a half marathon 
Yeah, what do you suggest I, your athletes, Chris? I generally agree. Usually I break it into three chunks, just like you've described. It's I sort of start and say, okay, first two to three miles, start anywhere from 10 to 20 seconds per mile slower than your target, work down to your target pace over that first couple of miles or three miles, then hold and I usually tell people to hold until mile nine or 10, try to be as consistent as possible through that middle section and then close the last 5k or the last four miles, depending on how they're feeling. That tends to be kind of what works well. I, you know, I think for an athlete that's a little bit more experienced in the half, they can maybe go a little bit sooner because they might have a better sense for where they are and how much they have left. But you know, just like with the marathon, as we've talked about, it's like you don't want to go too soon for fear of, you know, kind of crapping out at the end. So I'm always a little bit hesitant that that will happen. So I usually say, all right, get to 9 or 10, reassess, and then from there pick it up based on how you feel trying to really crush it over that last 5K especially. That's- don't, you think, don't you think, though, Chris, that that, that, that experience of so many races – we just talked about the 5K, the 10K, and we know about the marathon – they're goat ropes. I mean, people get their butts kicked. They get their asses kicked in those those three races. And the half marathon is the one place where an athlete can actually feel like they can get on top of it. Um, you know, and I think some of this might be balanced from the fact that um, I had, you know, my personal experiences. I had, I, I got to run in the inaugural, the very first world half marathon championships in Brussels, Belgium, um, many years ago. And I had this experience. I had no idea what I was doing, Chris. No, no, no idea. I mean, I had run. I was a 5K, 10K runner. I was a good cross-country runner. I had never planned on running a half marathon or a marathon at any point. I was of the opinion that the shorter distances were the coolest and that marathoning was overrated. Um, I went through the first 10K at my PR, okay? I PR'd at 10K. And I looked over, and there was a guy who I swear to God was a 50-year-old Russian guy. I swear he was 50 years old. And he was going, like, breathing heavy. And I'm like, I just PR'd for 10K, and I've got a master's 50-year-old Russian who's about to whip my butt. And um, I accelerated out of shame and uh, out, of, out of the feelings of there is no possible way that this old man can beat me. Um, and it sort of woke me up to the to, – and I ended up running – I didn't run a negative split in that race because I'd already PR'd, but I ran really fast and, and way faster than I would have ever expected to. Um, shame was important to it. But I also think that part of it is – that's maybe my view about the half marathon is that I was so I – I, when I got to 10K at a PR, I thought there's no way I could possibly finish this thing. And I did, and I did in a way that I was really proud of. And I think that the half marathon gives the greatest gifts because it doesn't ask physiologically, it doesn't ask of us anything that we're not capable of unless you just go out really, really, really way too fast. Um, I was aided by a master, a 50 year old Russian guy, but you know, everybody, everybody has different ways to get motivated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, well, I think, I mean, the point there to me is that it, it can be forgiving and I like the half as a race where, especially if I'm trying to get someone to practice suffering and, you know, learning perhaps their limits or testing their limits, you know, occasionally I'll give someone a plan and, or at least we'll discuss a plan that's sort of like, hey, we're going to go out intentionally faster than we think you're ready for so that you have to get into that kind of cave and 
pain cave and then figure it out and see what happens because sometimes you surprise yourself. And I think this distance is one where you can sometimes surprise yourself if you just, you know, go out a little bit more aggressively than you think you're capable of. And it's not, as you said, you're not running past that aerobic or anaerobic threshold into a place where you're, you know, your stomach is flipping and you're, you know, you're like breathing and heart rate are completely out of control because it's, you know, it's more mellow paces. At least I use mellow in quotes there. And so people can dig out of that hole and kind of figure out what their limits are and then come back and still have a really strong race, even if they've gone a little bit too aggressively early. But that being said, I still like overall, if you're trying to optimize for the half, having that plan of kind of negative splitting in, in those three chunks. This does remind me of one of my, I guess my second fastest half marathon. And this would be a non 3M for those in Austin. 3M is a downhill half. So it kind of gets an asterisk on it, but this was a flat race in Columbus. I did. And I remember showing up at the starting line, not really knowing kind of who would be there. You know, it's like, I think I'd looked at the previous year's results and thought, you know, I could be in the mix to win this if the right cards play out and if the right people show up. And so I get to the starting line, I'm looking around and there's like five guys from some college cross country team that were there. And I saw them. I'm like, surely they're going to kick my ass. And so I, in my head, made a mental note, and we actually started on a track. The first three quarters of a lap were on the track before you went off onto the roads. And so I made a mental note, you know, stay stay away from those guys. At least give them a little cushion because they're going to go out faster than you're capable of. And so I did that. Gave them a little leash and said, okay, I'm going to kind of settle in. I was the sixth person in that race around the track. Probably settled in like 20, 30 meters behind them. Come through mile one, feeling relatively good, but I looked at my watch and it said something like 525, which, you know, as you know, Steve, is in over my head for a half marathon. (laughs) (laughs) That's when I say lactate dump. Yeah. So I remember looking at my watch and that, I'm like, oh man, (laughs) I just screwed myself. And so I spent the rest of that race, you know, trying to stay you know, composed and stay on it, which I did fairly well. I think I, I finished in 117, which is right about 550 overall average pace. And so I held it together pretty well after going in and I ended up catching one of the five college kids who came back to me at the end. Uh, but, I, you know, I was able to kind of work it out. You know, it's like I had to back off in that second mile and you know, but it, but I kind of stayed on it and I wasn't so in over my head that I couldn't figure it out. And I figured, you know, so I kind of worked it out and ended up having a decent result, even though I got in over my head early. So that's my half marathon anecdote. Hmm. All right. So let's talk marathon. Obviously, we've talked about the marathon before in episode five. In fact, we do We did a whole episode on marathon race planning. So I think everybody knows that we talk about the marathon in the context of a negative split or perhaps an even split for the right athlete just as by way of summary steve give give the folks who might be newer listeners a recap on what we recommend for marathon pacing the marathon always wins so you're going to suffer anywhere from 
hopefully 16 to 18 to the finish line. And so knowing that that's going to be the eventuality, regardless of the training you've done, regardless of the pacing that you decide to in, integrate for your race, you're going to, you're going to suffer. Um, you know, I've had recently a couple of my athletes that have run early this season. I've got the majority of them running California International in a couple of weeks, but I've had a few athletes run recently. And I think that to a person, my suggestion to them after their race was we need to be better prepared for the suffering that happens late in races. I used to say we need to be prepared to accelerate at the end of races, but I actually don't think that it's a physiological problem as much as I think it is a psychological one. And that is just to be willing and accept the fact that you're going to hurt. I, I, I recited that Jordan Hesse quote that, that she did in last week, Chris, after Chicago, where she said, basically, to paraphrase, that her job is to suffer. She expects to suffer. She takes pleasure in the fact that her job requires her to suffer. And so she suffers, but she never freaks out. She stays balanced. And so if you know that you're going to have problems later on in the race, and you know the race is going to create these really negative uh, physiological feelings, you need to do something psychologically to prepare yourself for it. And so, yeah, my race plan is based on a psychological model of preparing yourself to suffer. Now, that doesn't mean that you go out in the first 10 miles too fast. Well, that's just, that's just pouring you know, alcohol. It's like pouring jet fuel on a fire. It doesn't make any sense. So what you want to do is say, if it's going to hurt later, how do I optimize my chances to feel good later on in the race? And that's to go out as slow as you possibly can to still achieve a time goal that you might have. So if you have no time goal, you know, then go out slow, then go out really easy. Take your time, you know, wave at the crowds, kiss babies, you know, listen to a podcast, do something else, literally chill out out and relax if you don't have a time goal and the race is going to create the difficulty necessary later on because of fuel consumption because of the race distance because of the pounding because of the heat because of all the other things that happen in a marathon right so my suggestion is to go out slower and close out the race and maybe you can accelerate maybe if you've done enough 22 to 24 mile runs Maybe if you've planned your training just right, or maybe if you just catch that amazingly beautiful day that happens occasionally for marathoners, you'll have a less than, less than terrible experience of the last five to six miles. But Chris, how many marathons have you run where the last five miles were pleasurable? It's always going to hurt, even, <laughs> if, even if you're finishing strongly and picking it up at the end. I mean, I've, I've, I've run a lot of really good, smart marathons, negative split style but it's always it's, it hurts every time yeah so you know you're right there's you know that's the general blueprint and i think you know a more experienced athlete can perhaps start a little bit faster and, and run a more even split race or some of it can be maybe the nature of an athlete's strengths you know i just had an athlete run chicago and she as i mentioned on this show chris mcleod i'd congratulated her she and i came to agreement on a a more even split race than i normally give because she is such a consistent metronomic pacer 
knowing that she wouldn't start too fast. She would get down to her pace, but not below, and she would be able to hold it consistently, which she was able to do. So in that case, I kind of allowed for a more even split approach. But most of the time, you want to start slow. I'll recommend sometimes even a minute per mile slower in the first mile than your target working down or the first three to five miles to your target pace, holding that through to 21, 22 as consistently as you can, and then close it out with what you have at the end. That's the general blueprint. Now, some people wonder, you know, shouldn't I be banking time? I mean, we hear that all the time. Shouldn't I be banking time early because it's easier early so that I don't, you know, lose as much at the end. And, and I always laugh at that because I'm like, that's you know, <laughs> the silliest approach you know, ever. Why would you set yourself up to kind of waste energy early when you're going to need the energy at the end? So I talk about banking energy. So be conservative, as Steve said. Start slow. Bank energy so that you have something left at the end to finish out strongly. So, Chris, I'm going to break in here for just a second because I think that one of the things, you know, you and I have a tendency because we've been doing this for a long time. Um, to not think the way that some of our listeners might think. And that's, um, you know, I understand, it, it took me a number of years over the last four to five years to understand why people would even conceive of a, of a banking time concept to make any sense, right? But I've, I've done my homework to put myself in the position of my athletes or of other athletes and I've said, why is this in a compelling storyline? Why in the world would someone think this works? And I understand because it's so easy, right? I mean, the first 10 miles are so easy. You know? We've done hard runs. We've, many of our listeners have done 10, 20 mile and 22 mile runs and 10 miles at their MGP, even though it's hard to do in workouts for some reason on race day, it's really easy. And I think that the problem is, is that we just want to tell, we're just going to, they, people want to be in the moment. And if you're choosing to just be in the moment from a marathon perspective, you're going to get goat roped. You're going to get your face pushed into the dirt. You're going to be crushed. So I understand why their idea, why we see so many athletes, Chris, so many athletes that we coach consistently make this mistake over and over again. And so I'm giving, I'm giving people permission to think the way they think, right? But I'm going to ask them all to be more intelligent. If they've taken this time to get an hour and 15 minutes into a strategy podcast about running, they're pretty smart people. And so don't make that mistake. Realize it's going to win. And just remember the mantra that I say, which is the marathon always wins, and be more conservative in your approach. Um, Chris, I have favored over the last three to five years a much more even split plan, especially with the races that my athletes run, which have been sort of downhillish courses recently with Boston and we're doing Siam. And so we'll do a real even split plan, but I call that a effort negative split, which is that the time is even, but because the early on in the race, it gives you some time because of the downhills that you can adjust that way. But anyway, I just wanted to give a little, I don't wanted to bump in there just to give a little credence to understanding why people know that, you know, you and I, we've been down this road for so long, we kind of forget that, but 
I get it. I understand why people say I should bank time, but I usually once people have banked time once or twice, they never do it again. So well, yeah, because or they never come back to the marathon, or they never come back. So miserable at the end. <laughs> it's so miserable. It's a death knell sort of strategy. And as you say many times, there's sort of the rule, the rule of threes. For every minute you go too fast early on, you lose three minutes or more at the end, and that's the result if you're trying to bank time. You're going to slow down. You're going to slow down more than you would otherwise. And you will not be getting your best race on that day. You got to trust us on this one, folks, even though logic might tell you otherwise, or at least false logic might tell you otherwise. Okay, Steve, so it's time to coach me up. We're going to talk about a 10-mile race. So it's not really sitting in any of these buckets, but I think it'll be interesting because it'll also allow us to bring in some nuances of terrain to this discussion. As everybody knows, I've got this big breaking 60, breaking one hour goal coming up in a couple of weeks for Run for the Water, a 10 mile race here in Austin, Texas. It's a really challenging hilly course. You sort of have mile one is sort of flat and then you've got two to six and a half or so of rolling pretty challenging hills and then about six and a half to the finish is mostly flat with a few ups and downs, you know, more gradually here and there. Uh, this will be my seventh time racing this race and run one variation or another. So I'm very familiar with the course. Steve is very familiar with coaching it because he's had a lot of athletes run it over the years. I must say, Steve, as I think about this one, I am questioning, you know, strategy a little bit. I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, is there a different way that maybe I've approached this race in the past? So I'd love to get your thoughts on how I should tackle this race coming up here in a few weeks. Well, Chris, you know, you, we, we, my, our, the athletes that I coach in Team Rogue, we, I made everybody do this two weeks ago. We did a uh, sort of a, a run for the water simulation, and we ran on um, the course. Uh, we didn't all hit this, the exact race course because it was, you know, 530 in the morning and it was dark. And there, there are some changes to the courses that the course that has some winding in the sort of important, you know, first third of the race. But, um you know, as you, as, I, as you said, Chris, I've coached this race now for nearly 10 years. I mean, it's been happening for nearly 10 years if it's not on its 10th year. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a 10-mile race that I would consider one minute slower, at least one minute slower for the very fit, very focused with a good race plan runner. Wouldn't you say that's that's true? It's about a minute slower per mile? Than a flat 10-miler? Than a flat 10-miler? Yeah, a minute. Not per mile, but a minute total. I mean, sorry, a minute total, right? Yeah. A minute cumulative. Maybe 90 yeah. seconds, yep. Right, maybe 90 seconds, right? I, I would say the unfit person is probably two minutes slow. The really fit, planned person is about a minute slow. And, you know, this year I, I asked my athletes in the training in the training floor, we did, a, we did a workout where we couldn't get it exactly right because some of the roads you can't get on. But um, I asked my runners to go out really fast early on, you know, near 10K pace. And then when they hit the hills to try to get into a rhythm – and it just blew people's brains in terms of what the heck that was, right? I think I might have even challenged you a little bit about what did it mean to be in a rhythm. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? This is a concept I don't really even get. And I guess my point about this, about really hilly courses um, to start with, and secondarily, a 10K, I mean, a 10-mile is right between this 10K and half marathon. And, I, you know, we talked about it, Chris. It's a race that allows you to take some risks and make some 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 bold and gutsy moves 
And if you if you get if you can relax a little bit, keep your head about you, you can get recuperated and recovered from that in the context of the race, and then make another stab at it. So, what I it's another stab at pushing the pace a little bit. And so, what I'm recommending is, um, generally, what I recommend in a race like this is you just try to find that comfortable, smooth rhythm, and not try to run something per mile pace. The problem with that is, is that people will go into the zone, as we've talked about now, which we talked about at that four mile, that four mile point in the 10K, is people will fall asleep and they'll get into the position where they won't be paying attention. Um, they won't be actively engaged in the race anymore. They'll be listening to the pain. They'll be listening to the negativity that's going on with them. So anyway, all that is a long preamble to state. A pace per mile methodology for this race plan would be foolish for you. And so what I think I would ask you to do first and foremost, and I'm going to take a page out of the Chris McClung book here. Okay. <laughs> and go back to your statement of purpose and ask yourself, why did you set this as your goal in the first place? What is it that you're trying to figure about out about Chris McClung, the runner? On that day that you've made this bold statement that you want to get under 60, you've attempted to do it many years, you're doing it and saying it on a podcast that, as we know now, thousands of people are listening to. So let's go back to the very beginning, Chris. Why is it that you want to, what is this purpose that you have to execute this race and to get under this time? Answer that for me, and then I'll probably be much better able to give you a race plan. Well... I mean, it's evolved over the years, as we talked about early on in these discussions as we got to my goal. This year, you know, so originally it, it's just about pushing myself, finding new limits on a challenging course. Now, having this as my seventh attempt after overcoming some adversity in the last 18 months, it's about inspiring others especially those that I coach that you know you can fall down or you can fail many times and get back up and still do it if you just stay with it and keep working that's what it's about and when I've had challenging moments in this cycle or I've had doubts that's what I think about I think about my group I think about wanting to do it to show them a lot of whom have had adversity or maybe going through adversity or having injury issues or maybe having not hit their goal after a certain number of attempts. I want to show them that if you just keep working, you'll get there. And for me, this is the year I get there, I believe. So that's what it means for me right now. So here's my question. What's the worst case scenario in the last three miles of this race, what would be the what would be the worst thing that could happen over the last two to three miles of this race, knowing that this race is pretty fast, can be fast near the end if you're able to take advantage of it? Would it be worse to be behind the eight ball, trying to catch up ground and trying to make up ground and looking at it later and saying, I was 10 seconds off my pace, I ran 60-10, because I because I went out too slow, or would the worst case scenario be I ran sixty ten, and I fell apart over the last two to three miles? I couldn't keep my shit together, and I faded and I couldn't kick it in. 
I, I think it would be the former because I feel like I can deal with the latter. You know, it's like, I mean, you've coached me a while. I don't typically blow up. I mean, I don't, you know, it's like I'm pretty good at getting a lot out of myself in a race, especially in a race that means something like this. So I think the worst scenario would be if I left too much to go get at the end, you know, and just couldn't get there um, or, you know, or wasn't able to get there because it was just too much to make up on those final three and a half miles. You know, combine that with the fact that a lot of times in this race, you know, I might be alone or have, you know, only a few people in front of me or they might be further in front of me than than I can use to really as a tool to kind of go fishing. And so if I was kind of solo on the road, having to make up more time than I than I, you know, could or was capable of, that to me would be the worst case scenario. Cool. So it seems to me, based on the fact that you want to inspire and that you know your strengths and your weaknesses, that a bold and aggressive plan makes sense for you. Uh, yeah. But one that one, and this is my point, is one that would ask for the boldness and aggressiveness to happen in the middle of the race, <laughs> not at the beginning of it. Um, and so what I would suggest to you is, you know, my general race plan for this race is to go out a little faster for the first mile and then, and then find a rhythm and figure out how you can negotiate these hills, how to take advantage of the up, the downhills while not fading um, too much on the uphills, and then being in a strong position when you come out of those hills to be aggressive over the last two to three miles, right? So generally, that's a pretty sound plan for this, right? Yeah, I mean, as I've been thinking about it, and just for context, last year I did this race. I ran one of my slower versions in a while. It was also a kind of warm and humid day, and I wasn't as fit as normal. I ran just over 61. But I came through halfway in 30, 30 or so, which is about what I typically come through in this race, regardless of the iterations of it. And, you know, in an ideal world, I would have been able to close down that 30 seconds over the final five miles. Last year, I didn't. I basically held that pace the entire race, even as it flattened out. As I've thought about this year, you know, I would like to come through in close to 30 flat. You know, almost even splits, you know, or have the ability to come through in 30 flat and then an even split race get me to the sub 60 but one where I can close a little bit, get me even below that, you know, whatever, 59.30, 59.45. Which would require a little bit more aggressive, maybe not start, but certainly the downhills in the middle need to be more aggressive than typically I've, you know, run on this race. You're not going to get beat up. You know, I think that that's one thing that people think about on this course is that all those downhills will beat you up. You need to work on taking advantage of those. The most important thing I think you can do is to take advantage of not going too quick on the initial part of those uphills, 
but to to you know to take it in the old school approach is take the top as my father used to tell me when I was running cross country which is not to go too fast at the bottom of the hill stay in a rhythm and then as you get near the top to really push and push over the top of the hill and then let yourself take advantage of the downhill um, that could possibly put you in a position to be in that 30 minutes and I think that's a good approach looking at it from 30 minutes at the halfway so try to get to your 60 minutes you know, if we look, if you and I looked at this and we were talking to an athlete other than you who hadn't run this race so many times, and, or myself as your coach, who's a little bit of a wild ass crazy man, then um, we would say this is a really non, not, not a very sound plan. Lots of problems could happen. Why not take advantage of the last three miles? But you haven't yet been able to take advantage of the last three miles, have you? Well, um, the, well, I did. The one year I ran 60.02, I was able to close, but the course was the other direction and I think right, and I think lent itself more to a fast close because you had you know that downhill yeah. on exposition from infield yeah. down to Lake Austin where you can really get rolling and then kind of carry that onto the flats here once you come out of the hills now you're at Hula Hut basically running to exposition and you actually have a slight climb there coming out of the hills so it's hard to like crank it into a new gear and it's really, 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 really long way from the finish. And all of our and you have run that stretch from Enfield Road to basically to South First and Riverside thousands of times. Right. <laughs> and you know exactly how long it is, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's not a. It, it, there's no way you're going to psych yourself up for that. You're not going to suddenly just change your mindset, right? Um, so I have an idea. You know, I. I've, I've been thinking about this. I'm always obsessed with people who close, right? And I'm really obsessed with Kevin Durant right now and how he kept asking for the ball last year at the end of the NBA Finals and how he hit those shots when it really mattered. But I think that you – I think that if you are close enough to the goal time that you want to run, your statement of purpose will allow you to be clutch. And you should trust that. Don't trust your strength. Don't trust your mental toughness. Don't trust other things. Trust that your statement of purpose is something that motivates you and you feel strongly about. And run that last three miles of the race expecting that you have to hold on and asking for the ball. Does that make sense? Like, give me the ball. I've got it. I'll make the last shot. You don't know if you'll make the last shot. You know you'll put it up cleanly and you'll do the best you can, but you don't know whether it'll go in or not. But you're asking for the ball. And I think that when we do a negative split plan, we're not asking for the ball at the end. You know what I mean? I think that what you're doing there is you're sort of like, I'm hoping that somebody else makes the last shot. I'm hoping that somebody else makes it happen for me. I'm hoping that I was conservative enough that it doesn't go there. But no, what you're, in your plan, it would be, I'm going to run a great race for the first seven to eight miles, and I'm going to trust that my instincts will take over, that my statement of purpose is a real thing, that my fitness is in a good spot. And to our listeners, Chris's fitness is very sound right now. He's probably stronger than he's ever been ever. I don't think you're as fast as you've ever been, but you're at least as strong. And I think that the cycle that you've put in this last eight weeks has been really the best strength-based cycle I've seen you put in since I've been coaching you. I'm really confident in your ability to hold on at the end. What I'm worried is, and I'm in agreement with you, that if we're too conservative early on, we're not going to get the chance to make the last shot. And if you run 60.02 or 60.03 again and you miss the shot, Fuck it. We'll get another chance. You know, we'll get we'll get one more chance. We'll get another chance to be to make the last shot. 
but you've got to, I think you've got to put yourself out there a little bit and you got to go for it. You got to take that risk and your sphincter needs to pucker a little bit and you need to be a little bit nervous about it, but not nervous about what happens in the first eight to 10 miles, eight, I mean, eight, you know, eight to nine miles, but more nervous about what will happen at the end. Now, somebody would say, well, that's not a good, that's not a good strategy to be making people nervous about what's going to happen at the end of their race. You know what? I've spent a lot of time working with champions and almost every champion I've ever worked with wanted the ball at the last minute. And I have a real strong feeling, Chris, that you're a champion in this regard and that you're ready for this now. So yeah, let's make a plan that puts you in a position where you have to make that last second shot. And that's basically just holding on enough or accelerating just enough to get it done over the last bit. Um, now, is that a real mile by mile strategy? Not exactly. But I don't need that. No, I'm not sure. That, I don't need that. But but this, you don't need it. You already know what this. You're already going to be checking your checkpoints all along the race. Yeah. Just ask for the ball, right? So my strategy point is, ask for the ball at the end. You're going to make the shot or you won't make it. But you know you right now you know you need that ball in your hand for that last minute shot. So let's go for it. Let's see what happens. And it, you know, it's awesome. I just want, we were, we've been talking about the Celtics. Some of, some of us, we're all basketball fans here. Sorry to all our people who are not basketball fans, but the Celtics have a really great team and they got a really young guy who keeps, who wants to take the last second shot and people are telling him maybe he shouldn't. And no, the only way you get good at taking last second shots is by taking last second shots. <laughs> so, well, I also say, I also, you know, I like this. I like the idea, you know, kind of be more aggressive in the middle than I have been in the past. Cause typically it's sort of like yeah. find a rhythm, you know, don't overdo it in the middle cause it's so hilly, but I like be aggressive in the middle, push up and over the, the downhill up, up and over the Hills, take advantage of the downhills because the other, the nice visual that that AK gave me is that last mile on the edge racing head to head with Ryan. Yeah. I ran a five thirty in a very similar profile to what the run for the water is. You've got to climb, you know, at the end and then a right turn to a flatter section, just like run for the water where you climb up Cesar Chavez, the South first right turn onto the bridge to finish. So I have a good visual for, you know, making the shot from that AK. So, um, I like it. This is good. This, this gets me excited. Yeah. And I think that it, it, again, I, I, the reason I knew I was, I didn't, I knew I was going to use this last second shot analogy with you, right? I already had this idea in my head. But I needed you to remind me with your statement of purpose uh, by why that would be effective for you. And for our listeners who are still questioning whether mental training is an important and valuable part of what they're doing on a day-to-day basis with their sport, I'm going to encourage you again to go back to the mental training episodes that we've talked about. And most importantly, to go back to the very beginning and look at your statement of purpose. Because all I did, Chris, was take your state, re- re- ask you to check back in with the reason why you're doing this for you to for us to come up with a really sound plan that makes you excited about something, as you just said in your own words, about 30, 20 minutes ago, you were a little bit worried about how exactly that would all play out and what would happen, right? You're a little getting a little nervous. And anytime I find an athlete that's nervous, if I have the ability to say to them, go back to your statement of purpose and reevaluate, that nervousness stays, that feeling of nerves stays, but the control of those nerves is enhanced. And the ability to be able to not move the way fear makes you move is enhanced. And when that happens, you've got warriors. That's what I call being a warrior. And um, I'm excited to think about how this will play out for you 
race-wise. And another thing for our listeners, honestly, I don't give two shits whether Chris runs under 60 minutes or not. That's his game to fight, right? I'm not, this is a small, this is small, low-hanging fruit from my perspective in terms of your long-term progression. But it means something to you. It means something to Chris to run under 60 minutes in this race. It's something he's been trying to do for a long time. What I'm more concerned with is Chris willing to take the chances and take the risks necessary to do big, crazy, psycho things. And the only way that you prepare yourself to do those is to take the risks and to take the chances and to put yourself out there. This is not rocket science. This is not brain surgery. People are not going to die. So you have a chance to be aggressive and to take risks. And I will, to the end of my days, I will ask all of my athletes under every circumstance to do as much as they possibly can to take these kinds of risks and to be willing to press the outside edges of what they think they're capable of. And yes, sometimes on national TV, you'll miss the last second shot. But if you practice and you practice and you practice, you might hit that last second shot to end the NBA finals and go away with the world championship. So I don't, you know, it, I think that Chris, this is a great step for you along this process of continuing to be, because it's not in your nature naturally to be super aggressive. So what you're doing is honing that aggressiveness for yourself, honing being an aggressive athlete. Well, I'm excited now. This has me fired up. As those who will listen to this, November 5th is the big day for me. So two weeks from when this episode releases, essentially, we'll have the race. And, of course, we'll break it down and let you know all the gory details of how it goes. But this is good. I, I like it. I'm glad we have a plan. Took us a long time to get there, but we got good at the end, yes. right? <laughs> <laughs> for all those still listening to us, we appreciate yes. you. <laughs> and, of course, thank you for listening, especially if you've made it all the way through this one. We appreciate it. <laughs> this has been episode 46 of the Running Rogue podcast. You can always check us out at our website, roguerunning.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Rogue Running. Until next time, we will talk to you soon.